Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Um, welcome. Uh, the lecture series uh, is one of the signature events of the Green Templeton College calendar, annual calendar. And as academic tutor, I'm absolutely delighted that we've had such a great turnout this evening for the first lecture in this year's GTC lecture series. Obviously, you've been a big draw, and we're absolutely delighted you could make it, as, and, and it's great you're here. Thank you. Um, the purpose of the lecture series is to explore a contemporary theme through a number of different perspectives, whether historical, global, uh, political, educational, or philosophical. The themes chosen annually relate closely to the mission of college, which is dedicated to understanding the issues of managing human welfare in an increasingly complex world. The theme of this year's series, which we are starting this evening, is The World's Child. Uh, global in orientation, the series is intended to raise questions about the changing nature of childhood and how our adult world responds to that. Among the topics to be considered are children's security and the significance of war and conflict in children's lives, our topic this evening. Um, the role of technology and the internet in contemporary childhoods next week. Um, children's life chances in an increasingly globalized world, which is on the week after. And uh, children's cultural life as reflected in children's literature and other literature, which is on in late February. The global focus spells a recognition of the increasing interconnectedness of the lives of children around the world and the belief that the future requires better sharing of responsibilities for all children, as well as greater knowledge about the impact of the adult world that we are creating on children. Our speaker this evening is Dr. Navi Pillay, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights between 2008 and 2014. By background, a South African jurist, she is a graduate of both the University of Natal and the Harvard Law School. In a formidable legal career, hers was, for example, the first legal practice in Natal province to be opened and run by a non-white woman. She made history as her country's first non-white female high court judge. But soon after commencing that role in 1995, she was appointed on Nelson Mandela's recommendation to sit on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Dr. Pillay went on to sit as the tribunal's president for four years until in 2003 when she became an appeals judge at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. In 2008, she took on what is arguably the biggest human rights job in the world and indeed served an extended time in that office, serving six years as against the, or serving six years as against the customary four. Among her achievements are that she briefed the UN Security Council more times than all her predecessors combined. Over her illustrious career, she has received far too many awards and honors to be capable of mentioning here in one hour. Uh, but I have to make mention of a few. For example, she was the recipient of the inaugural Gruber Prize for Women's Rights, and she has received honorary doc doctorates from Durham, the LSE, 
uh, Rhodes University, the University of Leuven, and City University uh, of New York School of Law. She has also been ranked by Forbes magazine as one of the most powerful women in the world. When she retired from her position in August last year, our independent newspaper in this country described her as being a world-class troublemaker. Um, it went on to say, on her watch, the UN's Human Rights Council has found a new sense of purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very happy to have Dr. Navi Pillay take the floor. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Daly, for that kind introduction, and I'd like to thank you and uh, the Vice Principal for inviting me to uh, come and deliver this lecture. It's a great privilege, although you did pressure me to come out <laughs> over the time. When I, as I sat here and, and uh, heard this loud conversation cheer, and all the cheer coming out of this room, I hate to have to uh, stop you from laughing and talking because this is a subject that I've been asked to speak on which is children, war, insecurity and conflict. So bear with me as I set out what I call the legal framework because you would like to know what is out there in terms of laws, especially international laws to protect children. I would say that there is not a single cause more universally embraced than the care and protection of children. And yet, instead of nurturing and treasuring them, we are failing to protect our most vulnerable population, our children, from atrocities and untold suffering during wars and conflicts. Great progress has been made, but much more needs to be done. And of course, one has to address this topic holistically and look at um, the treatment of children and their suffering during peacetime as well. But I'm going to stay with this subject. I'm also very much looking forward to our discussion and, uh, and very interested in your comments and suggestions as well. So let me begin by asking, what is the essence of childhood? And I give you a quote from Nelson Mandela, who said, children are the most vulnerable citizens in any society and the greatest of our treasures. There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. He went on to say, children must at last play in the open felt, no longer tortured by the pangs of hunger or ravaged by disease or threatened with the scourge of ignorance, molestation, and abuse, and no longer required to engage in deeds whose gravity exceeds the demands of their tender years. The United Nations has, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the International Covenants on Human Rights, proclaimed and agreed that everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms, civil and political, economic, social, and cultural rights set out in the UN Declaration. They also recognize that children should be afforded the necessary protection and assistance to live 
an individual life in society and brought up in the spirit of the ideals proclaimed in the Charter of the United Nations and in particular to be free from fear and free from want. Of all the human rights concerns, the emphasis on the care and protection of children has been a long-standing and ongoing commitment by the international community. And if you get uh, this written copy I've set out in the footnotes, that starting from the Geneva Declarations on the Rights of the Child in 1924, it went on almost every year where the uh, United Nations has addressed the concern over children. The Convention on the Rights of the Child is the most widely ratified of all human rights treaties. There are 10. The only UN member states not to have ratified the convention are Somalia and the United States. We have an American here, Liz Young, who's flinching, but that's a fact there. The optional protocol on the sale of children, child prostitution, and pornography has 169 ratifications and the optional protocol on children in armed conflict has been ratified by 159 states. So, as you can see, an overwhelming number of states. The expansive legal framework developed internationally is significant and indicates the importance given to the protection of children's human rights. States undertake by framing these conventions by ratifying them. They undertake to respect and ensure the rights of each child without discrimination. They undertake all, that they will undertake all appropriate legislative, administrative, and other measures for the implementation of the rights to ensure the protection and care of the child in conformity with established standards, that is, the best interests of the child. Under international law, a child means every human being below the age of 18 years, except where a state's, state's law confers majority status before then. And so what are the conditions of childhood that form the rationale for special protection of children? It is by reason of the child's physical and mental immaturity that the child needs special safeguards and care, including legal protection. The preamble to the Declaration on the Rights of the Child states, mankind owes to the child the best it can give. The goal is to achieve a happy childhood and enjoyment of all human rights, the responsibility to ensure this falls upon men and women as individuals, upon national, regional, and local authorities, as well as all institutions, agents, and civil society bodies, and of course the international community. So let me then describe to you what is the state of the situation of children in the world today. So despite this extensive legal framework I refer to. And despite the multiplicity of actions taken, the reality is that children suffer grave violations of their human rights, particularly in wars and conflicts where there is a breakdown in the rule of law. 
and unaccountable armed rebel groups recruit children and inflict violence, terror, and displacement of children and their families. Hundreds of thousands of children have lost their lives, are seriously injured, abducted, subjected to violence and detention, and displaced from their homes. Children are being recruited and used in the fighting by ISIL in Iraq and by both government and rebel sides in South Sudan and Syria. Girls are being sold into sexual slavery by ISIL for $10 each girl. Children were killed when a school was bombed in Peshawar, Pakistan, just two weeks ago, and a 10-year-old girl was trapped with explosives and detonated in a busy marketplace in Nigeria. So while the United Nations was originally conceived as an organization of states for resolving disputes and interstate conflicts, with the developing legal framework of individual rights, it is clear that the United Nations is a norm-based body. State responsibility to protect rights includes taking action to end impunity for non-state violators. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights jurisprudence in the Valesque case set the precedent for state sovereignty, meaning a duty of diligence to prevent, prosecute, and punish perpetrators who violate the rights of others. So that was uh, a judicial pronouncement. But at the World Conference, the World Summit of 2005, all heads of states and governments solemnly recorded that every state and the international community as a whole has the responsibility to protect populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. So that summit is a resounding statement that international law is value-based. It embodies human rights, democracy, good governance, and the rule of law, and distances itself from state-centered system of traditional international law based on the preeminence of state sovereignty. The goal of international law respecting the freedoms of sovereign states is also to protect and promote peace, security, development, and human rights. State sovereignty is often invoked by some states to deflect UN action to prevent human rights violations. But as I have often said to governments when I was the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, you made the laws, now you must observe them. So as a judge, I come pretty close to saying you have a legal obligation to prevent uh, conflict and protect children. I have drawn attention to the underlying legal ob obligations incumbent on states from their own national laws and international law to which they subscribe to act to protect when gross violations of human rights or, or ethnic crime or other crimes are occurring. Um, now, I mentioned this very briefly, but this is an ongoing, extremely hot, divisive approach in the United Nations, this constant 
reliance on state sovereignty, do not interfere in our internal affairs, and so on. International criminal law extends liability to both state and non-state violators. Now, I'm I'm raising this because a a very common question is, are rebel leaders and army groups, in other words, non-state violators, accountable? How can we make them accountable? So in some examples, the International Criminal Court tried and sentenced to 14 years imprisonment rebel armed group leader Lubango Diallo for crimes, including the recruitment of children, and two other rebel leaders, Bosco Integanda, rebel commander in the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Dominique Ongwen, brigade commander in the Lord's Resistance Army in in Uganda, in the Uganda conflict, are presently facing charges, including involving the recruitment and use of children in the hostilities. Uh, so they are both being tried before the International Criminal Court. A head of state, Charles Taylor of Liberia, was convicted and sentenced to 50 years imprisonment for aiding and abetting in war crimes during the civil war in Sierra Leone. The court determined that recruitment and use of children aged less than 15 years constituted a war crime under customary international law. So there were very many gaps in the law until this very first pronouncement by uh, a hybrid international court. The United Nations Security Council resolutions have enumerated six grave violations against children based on their egregious nature and severity of consequences on the lives of children during wars and conflicts. Uh, These six are recruitment and use of children, killing and maiming of children, sexual violence against children, attacks against schools and hospitals, abduction of children, and denial of humanitarian access. So let me address the the grave violation of recruitment of children. International law is clear. Protecting children from the effects of armed warfare is a legal responsibility and of consequence for international peace and security. Parties to the conflict are obliged to take all feasible measures to ensure that children who have not attained the age of 15 years do not take a direct part in hostilities, and in particular, they shall refrain from recruiting them into their armed forces. A report published in uh, 2012 by Child Soldiers International Uh, the publication is called Louder Than Words, examines the record of states in protecting children from use in hostilities by their own forces uh, and by state-allied armed groups. It finds that while government's commitment to ending child soldier use is high, the gap between commitment and practice is huge. And the the report argues that real prevention entails tackling risk where it begins with the recruitment of under-18-year-olds. 
A global ban on the recruitment of children below 18 is long overdue and must be at the heart of prevention strategies. But to be effective, it must be backed by enforcement measures that are applied to national armies and armed groups supported by states. The report contains a detailed analysis of laws, policies, and practices of over 100 conflict and non-conflict states, providing examples of good practices and showing flaws in protection that put children at risk in the first place. It provides a 10-point checklist of recommendations on how states can do more to end child soldier use more globally through policies and practices on arms transfer and military assistance and in the design of security sector reform. I want to underscore the need to prioritize prevention as being vital to protect children from all kinds of violations in situations of armed conflict. Now, the second grave violation, as listed by the Security Council, is killing and maiming children. Both international humanitarian law and international human rights law assert the right of civilians not to be arbitrarily deprived of life and prohibit killing and maiming of children. International human rights law ensures the right to life, the right to liberty and security of the person, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child recognizes that every child has an inherent right to life. Torture and inhuman or degrading treatment and mutilation are explicitly provided in the Geneva Conventions. Parties to a conflict are obliged to protect children from being killed, injured, or maimed. The two firm principles of IHL, distinction and proportionality of the Geneva Conventions and the additional protocols apply to both governments and non-state actors in all situations of armed conflict. Direct, indiscriminate and disproportional military attacks violate the principle of proportionality where they exceed the anticipated concrete and direct military advantage of such uh, indiscriminate military attacks. Parties must distinguish between civilians and combatants. The use of indiscriminate weapons such as armed drones, chemical warfare, landmines, cluster munitions, barrel bombs, and shelling in the many conflicts raging currently cause unconscionable loss of lives, injury, and maiming of children and undermine the carefully constructed protections in international humanitarian law and international human rights law. Sexual violence against children. Rape and sexual violence against children constitute grave breaches of international humanitarian law and the additional protocol to the Geneva Convention. Article 77 reads... Children shall be the object of special respect and shall be protected against any forms of indecent assault. The violations have been determined to be international crimes in the UN International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, ICTY, 
and the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, ICTR, and the Rome Statute establishing the International Criminal Court. So these are international crimes. In the ICTR, where I served as a judge, we found on the facts that rape and sexual violence were crimes of genocide, crimes against humanity, and torture. The Rome Statute, Article 7G, specifically enumerates as crimes against humanity rape, sexual slavery, and forced prostitution, forced pregnancy, and forced sterilization, or any other forms of sexual violence of comparable gravity. Schools and hospitals are civil institutions providing education, shelter, and protection for children. The principles of distinction and proportionality apply in the attack, attacks against schools and hospitals and the use of schools by the military. Now, I set out the, uh, these um, specified crimes in the Rome Statute with regard to sexual slavery and forced prostitution, uh, forced pregnancy, and so on, because those crimes are not included in very many national uh, legislatures in states. So internationally, we are ahead in describing these as international crimes. The International Criminal Court is currently holding the trial of Jean-Pierre Bemba Gambo, the former leader of a Congolese army group for war crimes and crimes against humanity on allegations of rape and other abuses by troops under his command. So the ICC's reach extends over armed uh, rebel leaders as well. Now, the fourth violation, attacks against schools and hospitals. Schools and hospitals are civil institutions that provide education, shelter, and protection for children. Attacks against them are subject to the Geneva Convention principles of distinction and proportionality. The underlying principle of international humanitarian law is protection of the civilian population. And as I said, the Rome Statute extends criminal accountability for failure to protect and failure to prevent. Six-year-old children in Gaza have lived through three Israeli Defense Force operations in their lifetimes and have experienced deaths, injuries, and destruction of their homes and, and also amenities such as uh, access to water and humanitarian aid all of their young lives. The United Nations Secretary General condemned yet another destruction of UN buildings and services in the mid-2014, <coughs> and he said the cycle of break, build, break, build must stop. The cycle of violent attacks will continue unless there is accountability, investigation, and prosecution by the International Criminal Court of ICC crimes. And that will be one certain way of deterring all parties to the conflict and ending the cycle of violations in the Gaza and OPT. The firing of rockets and missiles by Hamas and other armed groups from uh, Gaza and, and the occupied Palestine into Israel have to be investigated as well. 
as acts of war crimes and crimes against humanity because of their indiscriminate nature. I visited the town of uh, Sederot when I was invited by Israel to visit that country. And during this visit, I met with the children who suffer immense fear, terror, and psychosocial insecurity, traumatized by the sounds of these uh, rockets being fired from Gaza almost on a daily basis. And at one point in July, I reported 2,000 such rockets directed at civilian areas in Israel just in that one month. From that visit in Israel, I crossed over to Gaza and noted that while adults on the two sides defended their own operations as self-defensive mechanisms, neither side was prepared to acknowledge that children on both sides were entitled to their human rights. The special representative of the Secretary General on Children in Armed Conflict, Leila Zarugi, has issued guidelines and practical tools to protect schools and hospitals at risk during conflict and periodically monitors and reports on all aspects of protection of children in armed conflict. She reports to the Security Council, the General Assembly, and the Human Rights Council on the subject of protection of children. And in November 2012, member states developed the Lucerne's Guidelines on when and how the military can use schools. Because obviously when the military take over the schools, the children lose their right to education. The fifth violation is abduction of children. Abduction of children is a breach of the Geneva Convention and amounts to a war crime. The Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 35, states... States parties shall take all appropriate national, bilateral, and multilateral measures to prevent the abduction of, the sale of, or traffic in children for any purpose or in any form. Acts such as enforced disappearance and hostage-taking violate the right to liberty and security and fall under the crime <coughs> of enslavement at the International Criminal Court. And the sixth uh, grave violation is denial of humanitarian access. Denial of humanitarian access violates the fourth Geneva Convention and the additional protocol thereto and constitutes war crimes and crimes against humanity. And here too, Principle 8 enunciated in the Declaration on the Rights of the Child stipulates the child shall in all circumstances be among the first to receive protection and relief. It is a principle of customary international law that parties to a conflict must allow and facilitate aid to any civilian population in need and subject to their control. Consent must not be refused by a party on arbitrary grounds. Parties must also permit the free passage of essential foodstuffs, clothing, and medicines intended for children under 15. Article 23 of the Fourth Geneva Convention provides that priority for aid must be given to children, pregnant mothers, and maternity cases. 
Now, in the conflict in Syria, which has been raging for more than three years, as you know, by late 2013, the unlawful denial of access to urgent aid, humanitarian aid, for thousands of children, men and women trapped inside Syrian towns that were under siege had reached the point of criticality. Despite urgent appeals by um, Valerie Amos from the UK, who is the head of the Organization for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, um, reported to the Security Council on the refusal by Assad to allow humanitarian aid in or to allow safe passages for them. President Assad had refused to consent to access. The Security Council, noting that the consent was being arbitrarily withheld and out of humanitarian concern, for the very first time authorized the passage of UN aid vehicles under escort and through safe corridors inside Syria. So a very important principle that we can force aid in uh, if a country refuses uh, to allow the aid to reach the children. The special representative of the Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict, working in partnership with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the various human rights mechanisms such as the Universal Periodic Review Process before the Human Rights Council. This is a process, as you know, where every country's human rights situation is publicly reviewed before the Human Rights Council. The High Commissioner prepares a report having consulted civil society. NGOs participate in the process, and the whole process is webcast. And really, uh, if you had asked me six years ago whether states would voluntarily agree to a public scrutiny by their peers, of course, by other states, uh, of of how they are protecting human rights, I would have said, well, it's not possible that states will agree to that. But there you are. They've agreed to it. We finished the first four-year cycle. There's now uh, the second four-year cycle going on in the uh, Human Rights Council where the focus is on implementation. So this is a, a very good venue for students of uh, the college to uh, follow on website or even to, to watch the process in the Human Rights Council. And I mentioned human rights mechanisms, so this is one, the UPR process. The other is special procedures. These are the independent experts. Uh, almost all of them are academics who are elected by the member states themselves. Uh, there are now uh, more than 50 of them. And then there are treaty bodies and regional mechanisms such as the EU, the AU, and the League of Arab States. Uh, so the uh, SRSG for Children and Armed Conflict, monitoring the situation in, in collaboration with these institutions, reports that 18 action plans are being implemented by 20 parties, states, resulting in the release of thousands of children who had been recruited and used in conflicts. She has listed 46 non-state actors 
in 14 country situations as parties that recruit and use children. So this report then goes before the International Forum, the General Assembly, Security Council, and Human, uh, Human Rights Council on who are the states who are violators. Uh, the report of the SRSG observes that notwithstanding the progress being made, so I did want to uh, go through with you the progress and advances that are being made. So it's not a dismal picture. Now comes a dismal picture. The, despite this progress being made, armed conflict still plagues children's lives, depriving them of their right to life and physical integrity as well as their basic economic and social rights. Every day in all conflict situations such as the Syrian Arab Republic, Sudan, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Afghanistan, she reports thousands of children are being recruited, killed, maimed, abducted, subjected to sexual violence, indoctrinated, and forced to commit atrocities. They are denied humanitarian access. They are deprived of health care. They are subject to arbitrary arrests and detentions and suffer as a consequence of attacks upon schools and hospitals. So that's the most updated report on the situation of children right now. The SRSG reported that girls and boys are being used as sex slaves, as combatants, or for labor, and that sexual violence causes irreparable harm and devastating consequences for the physical and psychosocial well-being of girls and boys. One can add to that list <clears throat> the indirect consequences such as disintegration of families, the lack of food and water and other amenities that adversely impacts all aspects of a child's development. Children are often caught in situations that offer no hope of change. So once again, when as High Commissioner I met rural women in Jongli State in South Sudan, two mothers there described the killing by their husbands and sons of their 12-year-old daughters for refusing to go along with marriages to old men arranged by the fathers in exchange for cattle. Cattle remain the source of both wealth and tribal conflict from time immemorial in that region, and traditional practices are deeply embedded in, this, in the psyche of people. Do children have rights? Asked these two mothers of me. Access to justice for children caught in conflict and post-conflict situations must be addressed. Advocacy efforts try to ensure that the rights and best interests of children are protected while ensuring that justice is done. It is sometimes difficult to determine whether a child is a victim or a perpetrator of crimes. The SRSG, uh, who, is the, who was the previous SRSG, Kumaraswamy, argues that given the forced nature of their association with armed groups, children should be treated primarily as victims and not 
as perpetrators. And this issue came up in the indictments issued in the Special Court for Sierra Leone. And there the um, statute said that no child under 18 uh, could be indicted, and yet there were many child perpetrators. They have, they have to acknowledge their responsibility for crimes as well. The optional protocol to the Convention on the Rights of the Child on a communications procedure entered into force in April last year. And, and now this optional protocol, the procedure, offers child victims of human rights violations direct access to an international human rights complaints mechanism. So it closes an important gap in the range of protection measures available to safeguard the rights of children. I must say quite a few parents raised with me their concern that their children can now go and complain against them. But just look at the situation I, des I described. We, we th we're looking at very serious violations. The 12-year-old girls and other 12-year-old girls caught up in uh, this uh, war and, and exchange of cattle. How am I doing with time? Ten minutes more. Uh, the optional protocol to the convention, uh, as I said, entered into force in April 2014. Um, now on prevention. Prevention of conflict, of course, offers the best protection for children. Human rights are always central to prevention of conflict. Patterns of violations, including sexual violence, provide early warning of escalation. The human rights agenda is also a detailed roadmap for ways to resolve disputes. So two decades of practical uh, uh, experience in the office of the High Commissioner and through their presence in 58 countries, including UN peacekeeping missions, have fleshed out a number of good practices that address both the proximate triggers of conflict and root causes. To emphasize three, let me highlight strengthening civil society organizations, increasing the participation of women in decision-making institutions, and individual accountability for past crimes and serious violations of human rights. The alarming number of uh, conflicts presently raging do cause some to question the relevancy of human rights. And even the UN Secretary General expressed his despondency over the demands made upon the UN. The conflict in Syria is metastasing outwards in an uncontrollable process whose eventual limits one cannot predict. It has taken more than 200,000 lives, forcibly displaced millions of Syrians now camped in UK, UN shelters in neighboring countries. The conflict has spawned tentacles across the border into Iraq. The atrocities being perpetrated by the ISL rebel group in Iraq has reached atrocious levels. Thousands of men, women, and children have been executed, forcibly recruited, <coughs> compelled to change their religion. There is no choice. You either change your religion from Christianity to Islam, or you leave the country. And failing those two, you get executed. Employing sophisticated modern te technology of the digital era, ISIL has managed 
to spread its jihadist propaganda and recruit young fighters all over the world in a most insidious manner. Now, almost on a daily basis, we learn of yet another shocking act of terrorism, such as the killing of Charlie Hebdo journalists in Paris, the bombing of a school in Peshawar, Pakistan, killing more than 45 students, the abduction of the girls in Nigeria, and attacks in crowded civilian areas in Nigeria, Kenya, and Yemen. And of course, there are other very complex situations in and highly eruptive conflicts underway in Ukraine and many other areas. They combine massive bloodshed and devastate infrastructures uh, with acute destabilizing transnational phenomena, including terror, the proliferation of weaponry, organized crime, and spoliation of natural resources. I would say that none of these crises erupted without warning. They built up over years and sometimes decades of human rights violations, deficient or corrupt governance, lack of independent judicial institutions, discrimination and exclusion, repression of civil society and public freedoms, and inequity in development and economic rights. So early detection systems such as the 51 Special Procedures the scrutiny by the treaty bodies all repeatedly alerted us to these shortfalls. They could and should have been addressed. This was in the first place the duty of relevant states, but when governments are unable or unwilling to protect their people, international law is clear. I quote, it is the responsibility of the international community through its various UN system bodies, but specifically the Security Council, to intervene and to employ the range of good offices, support, inducement, and coercion at its disposal to diffuse the triggers of conflict. And it's true that I have addressed the Security Council numerous uh, times, which was not the case with my predecessors. It's an acknowledgement by the Security Council as well that they cannot protect peace and security and development without Uh, knowing about the human rights situation. I suggested that the Council can take a number of innovative approaches to prevent threats to international peace and security. The Secretary-General has come up with the Rights Upfront Action Plan. This is now uh, supported by every department in the UN, both development, the political department, and human rights. And this plan of action came about after the UN's failure to protect civilians in the uh, Rwanda situation and the Sri Lanka situation. Um, And, of course, the Human Rights Council has played and will continue to play an important role in the protection of uh, children. On occasions, the Human Rights Council has issued strong and united signals that atrocities will not be tolerated and individuals will be brought to account. And they've set up commissions of inquiry to find what the facts are on the ground. (coughs) So let me stress that having to react to past or ongoing atrocities implies that we have already failed to protect children. The most effective way lies in the prevention of relevant violations and crimes before they occur. 
It is at this stage that the international community should be most vigilant. Crimes and violations occur because warning indicators such as persecution of minorities, such as hate speech, patterns of discrimination, sexual violence, child soldier recruitment, or a rapid deterioration of the economic situation are not perceived or understood, or they are deliberately disregarded. So as a judge on the International Criminal Court, I was moved by testimony of witnesses in the Rwanda genocide trials that hate speech was spread over years like small drops of petrol that sets the whole country on fire. So great support should be forthcoming from the international community for technical assistance for initiatives aimed at developing national capacity to prevent gross human rights violations, to develop a human rights culture and independent institutions. On a positive note, let us appreciate that the vast majority of states are free of wars and conflicts and are actively engaged in efforts to advance the promotion and protection of human rights of their people in the true spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Thank you, Mary.